Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus and today I have with me Dr. Hussain Nadeem who needs no introduction but he is executive director at the Islamabad Policy Research Institute leading their strategic communication reform efforts. He is someone who has a lot of experience working within and outside the government on reforms on trying to push through things, um, get the structures of government to innovate, to incentivize change and all of that. So I figured we would have him on here today to talk about why is it that it's so hard to reform things and change things within the structures of government in Pakistan and how are things changing? Obviously, nothing is static. Things are improving in some ways, things aren't in others. Um, so Dr. Saab, thank you for taking out the time and joining us here today. My pleasure was there. It's, uh, it's a real uh, great privilege to be here and talking to you. been following your work for some time and uh, always had the pleasure to talk to you as well, especially on no, WhatsApps. Likewise. Um, and I want to start with speaking of WhatsApp, maybe this is a good starting point that I want to get your view and talk about innovation and, and the use of data and policy overall. And why is it so hard to get this thing to change? Um, I sent you this, like my friend Junaid Akram, who's a social media influencer, posted an Instagram story saying the government of Pakistan is still using faxes to send notifications. Um, and he was he had a funny rant about it, but it is a very serious question that a why are we still using faxes and why is it that the larger point which I want to get your views on is why is it that when we know that there are reforms needed in national security issues in the way the foreign office works in the way the world has changed on economics, etc. Um, we know a lot of that, um, but it is very hard to get these changes changes through the system in Pakistan. Why is that the case? Why is it so difficult? You asked a million dollar question and uh, I think Dr. Rishu Hussain has spent his lifetime working on this problem and then trying to implement the problem as well. Uh, it would be good to also have him on the conversation. But uh, on your friend Junaid Akram's uh, part, I think he's wrong on one part at least. Uh, fax machines are definitely still used, but take a step back and the file system with that Dory, that's still the most used uh, form of communications internally within the government. And also when you have to send out a communication to anyone. So despite the fact that you may be using in email or WhatsApp, unless and until you don't put it on paper and circulate it in the file, it's not official. So the, we're still living in three parallel universes. One, the Dory system left by the British. So we have that. The other integrated by the Americans through the Nortel and the fax machines, we retained that. And now we've also moved the entire uh, government and public policy on WhatsApp. Yet all three structures, Alhamdulillah, are very much intact and are being used parallel. So it's not that we've not changed, we've changed, but we've kept our comfort very much intact so that in case if we fall or the, somehow there is a technological apocalypse, we still have the filing system intact. So, so that's, that's there. So I just want to reword how things work. So it's not that we're not giving up on, or it's not, we're not moving ahead. We're moving ahead, but we're also keeping the past very much uh, tightly intact. So the there's a PDF of circulated, but the PDF is a printed scanned copy of a digital document, which is then circulated as a PDF. Absolutely. So the, our entire communications and policies are whenever you're developing that it's literally out of some sort of, uh, uh, insecurity or pessimism that technology itself may fail. So we need to keep 
are other options open that that we're much comfortable with so i think that when you ask this question about why are things not changing for instance or why things are moving really slow it's because a government as you probably already know it's a huge machinery uh and the and and its willingness to change very fast is essentially the incentive to do that is not much there because there is no real urgency to do that the government does not operate in any sort of urgency that we have to do this and this and this because primarily the mindset that goes into the government institutions and to the government policy makers is that that anything you do in a haste or in a reaction is almost always going to be a problem but then again there is another problem as well that if you do nothing at all that's also a problem so the right balance between the two worlds is essentially the problem and sometimes i think we talk a lot about these reforms issues why we are not doing it whether there is a lack of political will or anything i do believe there are structural issues involved to that so when you have tenure systems which are essentially two years or in some cases i am policing there are six months of tenure in the ig punjab which is the principal individual going to undertake reforms how do you undertake reforms when you know that my maximum tenure is essentially six months so politicization i think is a little bit more important thing uh, lack of tenure and uh, uncertainty is the reason why you won't find any appetite for a long term strategic reform so essentially what happens and i'm sorry i'm dragging this a little bit more but essentially what happens is that that anything that takes under 6 months is approved right away but anything that will take above 6 months to 1 year is a maybe and any strategic project which is above 3 years is definitely not so in that when you've categorized as a senior leadership or a senior management the projects to be done in that particular context then what you have is essentially a change that does not really happen in real time so so we, we, that that's super fascinating thank you for breaking it out that way because like it, there's a lack of urgency nothing over 6 months or let's say time horizon of a year or over is sort of fully approved and quickly moved through the system but then at the same time we see in government that there is a constant sort of crisis mode right and you and i have talked about this as well around national security foreign policy we see this in economic policy as well in the sense that oh all of a sudden uh, lng ship needs repairs and we don't know what's going to happen right or or, or all of a sudden we need to have a focal point person to talk about pakistan's afghanistan policy and not have six people talking six different things on the stratcom side right all of they're all interlinked so so is that just uh, an incentive issue is it a structural issue is there something as a low hanging fruit that can be fixed to begin shifting pakistan away from this constant crisis management mode cycle across institutions so you know there are two sides on this specific issue and we deliberate a lot we deliberate a lot on this issue within the within the government sector and within the think tank as well and there are two views on this thing uh one view is essentially that the more you do the more you try to fix the worst the worst is is going to get eventually because in attempts to fix a problem which is probably probably is about something else your wrong, wrong diagnosis ends up creating solutions which create more new problems what i am essentially saying is that you end up creating layers and layers of institutions for instance you realize okay so we have an one problem let's do this thing develop a one committee on this 
oh, this didn't work out. Let's develop an Apex committee. Let's develop a Stratcom committee. So you end up creating committees and committees and uh, essentially uh, layers of institutions, which are kind of creating more and more problem. So for instance, within the government, if you look at the previous and this one, the answer to every problem is not developing a committee on top of another committee, which then will fight with each other for role and influence. The, the, and this is so this is one view the other view is that that since this is a matter of national security or agency we need to deliver so let's just develop some running framework that can deliver quickly and then we'll figure out what happens next what happens between these two different thoughts process is essentially that the long-term strategic approach or the sustainability part of whether when we create something how is it gonna because you know in government whenever you create a project a development project whether it is even for instance when i was working at the planning commission there's one thing very interesting that i uh, i found out was that that development is essentially has both losers and winners so whenever you invest 60 million dollars in a development in rural sindh or in a punjab there are going to be a lot of poor people that are going to be benefiting it but there are going to be many many more communities that are going to have to face the impact, the marginalization, for instance, when you create a dam, there is a lot of IDPs involved in it. Whenever you're creating any development projects, the, the costs and the price you have to pay, there are always there. So within the context of the framework, and we're talking about the national security and the foreign policy and the strategic communications, we are fixing small problems while creating bigger problems. So that is the second view that is already there. So how I see it is essentially very simple. I think it's not really complicated. We have over 70 years of institutions. And if you predate it from the British Empire, they're coming from a very, very long history with a particular mindset and with a particular system of running the government. The, the goal was to eventually reform the institutions. You didn't reform the institutions. You tried to create small islands of successes, which were related to individuals. So Shabazz Sharif came, he delivered on ABCD project. He left, the system entirely collapsed because there was no sustainability to the structures. There was no empowerment of the, 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 the bureaucracy that was working underneath. The, the, there were no runners on the ground that could hold on to that machinery. So I do think that the core issue is essentially about coordination on the strategic communications part. And specifically when you talk about the LNG and all of these issues, I've had to uh, I've had the chance to work on some of these problems. The, 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 the issue is not to do with any incompetence or the issue is not really with any person trying to sabotage or it's a political lack of political. The real issue is that are the departments coordinated or not? And I'll just give you one more example on this issue. Throughout the year, we are doing national security business, this and that. Come first of uh, uh, first Feb and we realized, oh, Kashmir is coming in the next three, four, five days. So the entire Stratcom starts two or three days before the Kashmir. Now, you know, it's, it's how the system has evolved where it is so disorganized. Although we have a full Kashmir ministry, by the way, ministry that deals with the Kashmir issue, which is, I'm not sure what it does the whole year round, but on first February, everybody wakes up in Pakistan and realizes that we have to do something about the Kashmir lack of coordination and a lack of the machinery to actually continue to work year round. Which is why when the LNG problem is not very different from the Kashmir problem or the problem that we are facing maybe internally with TTP, all these different disparaging problems have something very much common. The denominator is very common, which is 
institutions that are very much disconnected to each other and they're not speaking partly because in a technological world where we live they're still on the filing system and that file takes time now so i do think but, but then it, it's not it's from what you explained coordination is obviously a big thing where it's a bit maybe a bit more than that right so if you have the kashmir ministry ideally the kashmir ministry would have an entire 12 month calendar with you know key dates on which you know important issues need to be raised people need to be coordinated coordinate for what is what i'm trying to get at so are those are the ministries are the institutions in your view doing that bare minimum at least where they say okay over the next 6 month horizon here are the key events that will happen and therefore we need to make sure that you know lng's december demand goes peak so in july we need new tenders or afghanistan the refugee crisis is boiling over because joe biden has said he's withdrawing troops on august 31st the announcement was made months ago so we need the refugee the ministry and the folks in uh, who are in charge of dealing with the refugees who should set up camps starting today so that in 6 months from now when there are tens of thousands of afghans coming in from the border or flying in uh, everything is prepared Do you think that that bare minimum of actual work happens uh, at the ministry level, or no? Is there an issue there as well? You're absolutely right on that part, and I think it, again, this the, the the answer is again the same in a way, and I'll articulate it in a different way. Uh, we only prepare food when we are hungry, so unless and until we don't feel the need, there is no appetite to do anything. For for instance, the whole year round. there is no appetite within the government to talk about kashmir at all you see so when come 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 feb the month of february then we start realizing okay kashmir is now a problem and that we need to start talking about it so we've kind of like earmarked that specific month for this and part of the reason is because the entire machinery itself is essentially in a state of emergency it's a state of in, in a state of constant uh one crisis after another crisis so when you are so stuck in the crisis you tend to not go to your immediate concern i mean you tend to only uh, attend your immediate concerns then thinking long term strategic issues i remember when i was with the previous government there was petroleum crisis with this government was the lng crisis and if you keep going back you realize that these things are actually not new they happen every single time with the different paces so it's less to do with the politics on the top it's more to do with the whole mindset of the political bureaucratic machinery that exists where the boss is only going to be bothered about that particular issue in those particular months when it is needed all other months it's not really an issue because there are more important things going on for instance i'll give you one example right now pakistan's biggest the entire pakistan's focuses on the afghanistan issue there are 10 million different things happening boiling around even on the afghanistan issue on the india issue and the kashmir issue which we are really not talking about till we realize that okay that one is hurting now so let's start talking about it and i think this this partly is not only restricted to pakistan anymore i study uh, actually my most of my work is on the us policy and i realize that the strategic policy making in the united states has been dead for past 20 good odd years part of the reason is because they've also transformed from that mindset of developing very long strategic foreign policy making to now being engaged on the day to day basis on how to run a particular theater of war 
and that i think is a direct result of what happened in afghanistan and i think this is then again i see that this is not the result of any specific agenda it's just how technology has evolved to a point where the institutions are becoming redundant the the, the business as usual is it cannot be uh, cannot survive the way it is trying to survive so good model to actually look at is australia i mean if you look at the australian reform agenda and how they and even britain to a more or less extent the way they're constantly changing their institutions and fixing integrating decluttering streamlining i think that's exactly how you develop a public service mechanism model or in inner departmental coordination mechanism that actually delivers in the digital age unless and until you don't do that then you'll have the lng problem then you have all sorts of problems as well which the us is going to face because essentially the us is a very large machinery and i mean we we love to talk about pakistan but the us itself is also very bureaucratic i mean i've never thought that any other country in the world apart from pakistan would be that bureaucratic but the us comes right at the top so they're facing exactly the same problems as we are facing in many of the cases yeah and i think it's similar to you know uh, they don't we don't have committees here but you're absolutely right there was a recent foreign affairs article or some other publication or about how even the national security council staff from its very old core of the post world war soviet war era when there was a big cold war going on was about 60 70 people it's ballooned to over 300 people now and the the addition the 3x in personnel is not that you have more regions of the world to look after anything it's just layers of bureaucracy that are up so now you have deputy principals committees and principal committees and then director level meetings and all of that is basically moving files not in the british format of dori but your point about like this being an issue it's it's global and i think the former australian prime minister kevin rudd i heard him say this once was that the problem we're going to increasingly face is that 19th century ideologies uh with 20th century institutions are expected to solve 21st century challenges and that's simply not going to happen right so we see this around the world in the sense that socialism or capitalism parliamentary or presidential democracies how does that work and then constitutions that were written in the 18 19 20 early 20th century expected to help the world and a young population of the world deal with issues related to climate change internal warfare things like that is simply not going to happen so i think th- that's where the reform agenda comes that's, in that's very interesting part and yeah, i love the quote you uh, put out with kevin rudd uh and this is one of the major problems when i'm talking to a lot of university students in pakistan for the purpose of hiring or whenever i'm on social media and i don't think i see it anywhere around the world and i've i've, I've had a chance to live worked in england australia and america canada uh while the world is moving out of that post ideological i mean from that very hardcore ideological uh era and moving towards more tech type of an identity driven by tech and the new economy somehow or the other our universities are now buzzing with marxism and communism and liberalism i frankly have no idea what it all means like literally no idea but what in this day and age of tiktok what does what is marxism i mean i think you can reevaluate and you can do all of that but if your universities are now producing and i feel fear for pakistan that if our universities are now producing marxists and not entrepreneurs technology entrepreneurs there is a really divide and disconnect between 
are what what is being taught at the university level and what is actually out there in the market and this is the problem that i face daily in my uh, my recruitment in, within the policy sector is that the people that i'm hiring most of the times are uh, are not from not from this age in many ways so you talk to them about ai or ml or you talk to them about uh, new technologies in the silicon valley or, okay that's even too far fetched but even the basics about how tech is influencing national security or how environment is uh, influencing uh, the governors so they would have less idea about that but the, the, that sort of activist kind of uh, politics and governance there is a lot of appetite for that so so those those are some problems which i think again takes the debate in a very different direction uh, which is not really helpful in the policy side either i feel that because there is no real pressure on the government to act because the the campuses where the real conversation needs to come out from they're too busy in some very very disconnected political activism and the other day uh, hussein uh, nasser from gw he he talked about this one very important fact and i resonated a lot that the the intellectuals of our society pakistan and he was talking about iran as well need to be the intellectuals of our own society not intellectuals of the new york so the the if you're raising the slogans and if you're raising the concerns of the global society or those that are pressing needs of the united states in pakistan it may get you traction on twitter but in real terms as somebody who sits in the policy what benefit do i get out of your discourse at a university so i think that disconnect is also very much there which i think kind of makes government a lot more comfortable knowing that there is no real person to uh yeah provide- I, I think there's a there's a issue around uh, modernization of ideas, right? I I'm totally fine with somebody being a Marxist, but at least bring your Marxism into the 21st century. For example, if you are going to talk about Marxism in the 21st century, then perhaps you start with on the policy side. Perhaps you start with talking about who should own data, and does that translate into good data protection laws and and things like that in the country in a Pakistan where. data literacy is a problem where you don't know where what telecoms are storing where they're storing data how are they keeping it secure who has access to that people's phone numbers get leaked etc cetera, etc cetera. so you can have a marxist marxist world view about it but then bring it to the 21st century and say that the state should create policies that make the individual the owner of the data not a corporation fair enough let's have that debate but you're absolutely right we're not having those types of debates and that's a problem but speaking of the 21st century one thing that i still i mean you know we talked about advanced economies and obviously they have access to a lot more data in the us you can go to the st louis fred website etc you get a lot of data online it's accessible you can inform your policy through that um that type of data in a pakistan type setting is very very hard to get access so not only for common citizens but even for academics people who are doing deep research um what's your view on what it takes to make policy more data driven versus policy that is dealing with crisis and also to your point right like in the in a bid to solve a problem you're going to create more problems the only way around it is using good data to inform your policy how is that changing okay so here's the thing on this part and we i think we we've, we've had some discussions of the of this converse, uh, of this zoom uh, podcast as well on this the the british were here for for a very long time 
and the last time any serious data uh, that was done of this region was by the british uh, the imperial imperial gazettes i'm not sure if you had a chance to look at them but they're one of the most fascinating documents because so sorry to interrupt here but you know since we talked about afghanistan and you brought that up when i was in grad school um doing research on pakistan's counterinsurgency doctrine the most informative stuff was the imperial gazettes they had documented the tribes the sub tribes their views their internal feuds and there was nothing modern coming out of pakistan that dealt or updated any of that stuff absolutely so you know then what i'm talking about those gazettes talked about every single aspect of every tribe in the entire region the way british ruled and this is what we were talking about initially as well why the americans failed in this region and how the british whatever they did they were able to retain an empire is because the first thing they did essentially in terms of governance in 1858 was to literally send out their people the bureaucrats actually the funny part is that it was they were the bureaucrats that did their entire data so they were sent out and they did the entire study because if you need to govern a land you need to first know what's on ground what needs to be governed the biggest failure of the american project in afghanistan has that that they went into afghanistan without actually knowing the ground at all so they didn't know what they wanted to govern what the situation was so everybody could literally fool them from a b c d and they were all ears they would listen to everyone i'm not going to go into detail of that but coming back to the data part the real data of this region has been done by the by the british the problem then is that we've continued to use that data set to this day in the government of pakistan and more or less in india as well now if we are still using that data which was a colonial project which framed the communities the societies in a particular way for instance this whole idea about uh the the bengalis as traitors it doesn't come from anywhere else but comes from the british or the pashtuns and the punjabis as a martial race martial race the pashtuns as the warrior class and all of that they're not your own organic ideas they're essentially framed by them so your national policies and the dialogue and the communications is essentially built upon a particular world view of the british empire about you so agreed that happened gone but post colon decolonization the data had to be changed because you needed to go down do an extensive study and all of that to change the the way things were being done okay that never happened move on forward you still have the districts you still have the british structures the dmgs the shos the police station i'm not sure how much you uh, uh, have researched on this part but the police station the sho that was in the particular area was was essentially the main uh, the main uh, area where everything was being done so that was where the the justice was being provided that was also the prisoner that was also the place where all the data was being collected everything was being done within the the, the police office and the district office now you do have the data that's the fun part every district you go you still have the data of every single possible thing we have so much useless data that you cannot possibly even imagine when i was working at the planning commission we had so much data on possibly you can you can't even imagine on a subject and we have data on that the real problem starts one uh whether that data is accurate or not 
because the people that now collect data are not as good as they used to be back in the 50s and the 60s the the quality of the data the input it was much better much super much better supervised and i believe a lot to the population explosion the urbanization and all of that which have changed that but still the quality of the data is one big problem second the format of the data so a lot of times the data i get or i receive it's in a format where i will have to spend next 100 years to transform that data into something that i can use for analytics purposes so we did a project a very small project right now with ministry of uh, 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 the law and uh, justice about this woman harassment and all of that and we've mapped out a little bit data on where the, the resource uh, institutions are and all and the real challenge was not that there was no data the real challenge was that it was pdf copies and to convert them into something which is more usable is is what was most problematic so the data is there the accuracy we can improve on that the format definitely needs to be improved the pipeline the data pipelines need to be established into a centralized organization which should be the ministry of statistics reform the ministry of statistics develop data pipelines it's literally a 6 months project with a proper investment you we don't really have to care about the accuracy right now let's forget about that develop the data pipelines integrate the data into intelligible form and then start working backwards to seeing how the numbers can be made more accurate so my problem within the government is not the unavailability of data my really real big problem is how do i convert that data into analytics because of the format and other issues now the reason i've explained to you is because of that but then there are a lot more other reasons why that's not considered useful and it will go back to my first point you're a secretary in the government posted in ministry of stats first you don't want to be there <laughs> why would you want to be there second more important part is now you're there uh you first need to figure out how do i get out of here so your next 6 months are spent on getting out of there if you're lucky you get out of there if you're not lucky you you sit over there and then you either figure out what i can do with this place or you can figure out that okay i'm just going to sit out quietly while the minister saab or anyone else feels that i've been punished enough now i can be put in somewhere else so certain places are essentially made as a punishment ground that if you're not happy with someone send it to ministry of stats or anywhere else so as long as that kind of mindset prevails and there is a tenure which is 6 months or a year or 2 year these type of projects take a long time so you you essentially need some people that can turn over the institutions and uh, that needs to come from the top eventually you can't really just have some grade 19 or 20 bureaucrat who can undertake that because the chain of command does not allow you to do that so if i am a grade 19 or 20 officer who is very much positive and optimistic i'll develop a project i'll send it over to the my boss and he realizes okay fine this is going to take 2 years or 3 years to hell with it i'm not going to do that because i will not be here to do so so i think these are some really problematic things that can be changed but but not by changing the things that we think are need to be changed by changing those things that go under the radar but those are actually the real issues involved over here yeah it's almost like you know you can you can buy the nicest plants and put them but if the soil underneath is acidic the plant is eventually going to die no matter how much you take care of it right so you have to dig in and like re reframe a lot of things that are there but 
you've been working, you work with the previous government, you've been working with this government, like what are some things that excite you in terms of, you know, you look at and say, you know what, okay, there's a lot of problems. We always talk about problems. Um, there's a lot to change um, and everywhere, not just Pakistan, not unique in that sense. Many countries have to deal with a lot of these challenges and are continuing to deal with a lot of challenges. Um, what are some things that you think have improved over the years that perhaps sort of are something we should talk about more and say, you know what, like things can get done. For example, like you talk about crisis management, right? And we get a lot wrong in crisis management. But when I look at NCOC and what NCOC has been able to achieve in a pandemic and under so much stress, it's amazing, right? Now, is that the template for other issues? Perhaps not because we're in a pandemic and this was specifically deal with the pandemic. But I look at that as a success story that shows when the government of Pakistan puts its mind to it, it can get stuff done. What are some other things that you look at and say, you know what, things are getting done? It's a very interesting thing and I have a very different way to look at it. And I think I kind of, uh, last two years back, I wrote an article on this specific subject as well. What happened with the NCOC, and you 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 know me very well. I was always very optimistic about the government being able to do that, and I'm I'm trolled for being too optimistic uh, on social media as well. That's exactly how I am. But here is the thing: what happened with NCOC is is not an accident. People think that we got lucky. It's not true at all. You don't get lucky. I mean, as long as fine, India was not under the uh, India didn't face what it faced. You could have said that Desis are getting lucky. But when Punjab on that side. And Punjab on this side was showing completely different numbers. It was not an accident. So one thing I want to make sure that this was not an accident. But what what really happened then? Here's a very interesting part. The way Pakistan has evolved in the last 70 years, this country has been in a state of crisis, one after the other, which essentially means that our institutions operate only during the crisis. Our institutions don't operate otherwise at all. MUFA, and with all due respect to my MUFA friends, I really love you all. But here is one. That's Ministry of Foreign Affairs for those who may yeah. not know the acronym. Ministry of Foreign Affairs gets a lot of heat all year round. The way Ministry of Foreign Affairs has operated in the last three weeks of Afghanistan, it is mind blowing. The bravery they've exhibited, I've had friends over there, I've had to evacuate a lot of people, two hours and they were issuing visas, 24 hours around the clock, they have delivered the best that any country has done in the three weeks. Why? And somebody at MOFA told me that we operate best in the crisis. But that's not only MOFA, that's the entire country. That's the nature of our countries. We are like a sleeping lion. We only wake up when there is a sort of crisis. And that's exactly what happened with the NCOC, why Pakistan was able to operate the best, better than any other country in the world, in my opinion, is uh, except for those countries that had a smaller population and that didn't hit. Pakistan's institutions are essentially made in a way and they're trained in a way wide to operate only in the times of crisis. So when the crises are gone, these institutions are going to go back to their shell and do exactly what they were doing, which is nothing. But when the crisis happened, the, the way they were able to mobilize and integrate with each other, the military connection, because a lot of people were blaming, I remember at that time, the oh, military did this military. The whole idea of civil and military, which has been a big problem for Pakistan in 50 million things, but it really worked in this corner because the NDMA and the military has dealt with these situations when it came to the floods and other situations. 
and they had integration with the civilian authority on how to manage the crisis in when it comes to handling the crowd and this and that on top of that you had a prime minister which refused to and i have to give him credit on that which refused to budge on twitter criticism because when everybody was saying that do this and do that i think he he his idea on using some level of data uh to make the decisions and the prime minister and other people as well i think that was very very good i remember back in the days i was running the nerve center we were daily providing data to the government of punjab and to the uh, the, the federal government on this and there were other people as well that were doing data providing data and i do know for a fact that the entire decision making was essentially being done on data and the crisis management and the response it was as if they were trained to do this thing the comfort that was there the lack of panic and all it it appeared that it it was it was there so i do think that the the crisis the reason why ncoc was a success or i do think and i hope uh, covid remains to be uh, not a big problem for us but i do think that uh, this country has uh, been able to perform very much there because it's it's because these guys know how to perform in that my only hope is that they're able to do that under non crisis times as well so similar with the, if i've given you two cases the ncoc and the afghan crisis right now both of them done in a way where you look at the united states right now the biggest empire could not even let alone could not even do the right evacuation had no had no plans at all on our side the plannings were already there the systems were in place and these guys were ready to just press the button and get things out of there so i think that 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 explains to you why uh, there was a success but then again it's good and it's bad both yeah i think uh, kudos to everyone involved like i think last at ipri only put it out 10, over 10000 people have been evacuated through these efforts so these are people have performed heroically right to save lives get people to safety and it is something we should celebrate and speaking of i think it's a way you're absolutely right it's a very national thing i don't think it's as restricted to government like you know those of us who are cricket fans know this from our cricket team it enters the state of hal right as usman samuddin has written so beautifully and poetically is that all of a sudden you will see see a pakistan team enter a state of hal and when it's in a state of hal there is no beating it because but then that state of hal is a very rare occurrence and it doesn't happen when you need it most at times as well so it, it is one of those things it is a strength but i think like it is something that perhaps at some level if we encourage that to become more institutionalized and say look you can perform at this pace when it's not even a crisis maybe things improve um i i'm mindful of time so the one last question or two last questions i had for you was from your point of view given everything that's happened in the last 6 months um the situation in afghanistan is very fluid um obviously the us is out the core diplomatic staff has left the soldiers have left um there is some leverage still that washington has but you know other regions uh, countries in the region as sir will play an increasing role um what risks do you see to pakistan given the fluidity of the situation in afghanistan and where do you see things going in the next 6 7 8 months it's very hard to predict anything at the moment because i do believe there is there is a there is an actual reality and then there is the there is this what goes on twitter so it's very hard to distinguish between what is real and what is not real even the statements that come out are with such a spin that sometimes we we don't know and then there is a bias 
for the last 20 years, we are made to believe in certain terminologies, the definitions and some ideas about the other on seeing them as particular way. And I'm not just talking about Taliban, I'm talking about America, I'm talking about all sorts of groups that are involved, including Pakistan. So we need to separate all these different things. I'll speak specifically from the, uh, from the, I, let's begin. I, I'll speak from the global perspective on what the challenges may be there for the global society. It's a repeat past as a prologue and you, you see, and I'll take you back to one specific statement, U S national security strategy, 2002, right after nine 11, the first thing they said essentially was that United States and the international society are not only under threat from the big powers. That was a cold war thing. The non-state actors in underdeveloped countries, the fragile, the failed states and all of that, they pose as much as of a threat. So they tied the insecurities and poverty in these parts of the world to the security and stability of the West. Now, while on the paper, that was a really good idea that somehow we need to secure, bring security, stability, and uh, good life in all across the world, unless we don't do that, we're always in security. That also created a sort of linkage between two things that probably were not linked at all. So the poverty in one part of the world in Ethiopia never really posed a threat to the United, to the United States. What this linkage actually missed was this idea that the places that had US involvement, the destabilization or the national interest, it was those places that posed a threat because of the grievances, the, 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 the Palestine issue, then the Middle Eastern problems and the South Asia and the Afghanistan, where there was a previous involvement of the United States in one or the other form, they posed a danger. So what is happening right now? I personally, for one, don't think that it's over for the United States. It's not because US may have been embarrassed, may have been humiliated. It's gone out. But if the goal was to eventually, you know, make America secure from attacks and all of that future attacks, the Al Qaeda is gone. Most of the world's terrorist network operate, op operators and all of that, that's more or less gone. ISKP is there and all, which I do believe that is can be managed and easily handled. But if the real goal was winning hearts and minds and stabilize hearts and minds start right now, the timing of heart and mind back into 2007 and 2015 was not there. You can't win hearts and minds by bombing people on the side. It's impossible. The U S tried doing that hearts and mind project should start right very now. Part of the reason why I say that is because you have one group in Afghanistan, whether we like it or not, Taliban is a reality over there. The Americans have accepted them. You need to engage with the Afghan people. Forget about Taliban. Engage with the Afghan people. Go directly to the ground. Engage with them. Develop resilience of the communities, the society, and try to play a positive role that was needed to be played. More closer engagement with the Afghan people will allow better stabilization of the region, which the Russians will be on board with, which the Chinese will be on board with, which Pakistan will be on board. So to avoid a sort of civil war taking up place right now, the biggest threat is that if Taliban or whatever the government that will be there, what we want is essentially is an inclusive government, whatever government forms, if it does not get a signal of, you know, recognition, legitimacy and all. There will be within Taliban, within Afghan society, small extremist groups that are going to continue to strike at will, which will continue to destabilize the region.
and that is where you don't want to go because the proxies that are operating in that part of the region can only be defeated if the international actors are responsible in their engagement with the afghan people so that has to be there and america still has to play the largest role from pakistan's perspective things are rather more tricky because for the last 20 years in afghanistan we we we've, we've tried to play the Uh, play a good part in whatever way was possible uh we get a lot of blame for that rightly so in many ways uh exaggerated in a lot other ways but for the last 8 years specifically the ghani government went on a very strong dose of ethnic and racial tensions igniting that within pakistan and afghanistan i don't know why that was the case so that happened so a lot of people are saying that pakistan is celebrating taliban's victory that's the worst possible idea that i've seen and i've talked to my a lot of my american friends as well nobody in pakistan is celebrating at the policy level or at the national level there is no celebrations yes there are pockets in peshawar there are there we saw the videos in quetta there are there there are millions of afghan refugees born and raised over here there are many of them embedded in the society carrying id cards from pakistan which we've treated as our own people so a lot of them are also happy with the situation where there is a government that is going down pakistan's main interest why many people over here felt that there is a relief is not because somehow we the country was happy about taliban victory or country was happy about the american fall from grace or anything it was only one thing that for 20 years we've talked about that military solution is not the way around and now finally some level of political solution can be done that was the only thing and which a stability may come in at some later point so that was that interest can i can Maybe. i push you on on that last point military pakistan has argued and you're right from policy perspective military solution is not the path forward but the taliban have fo- pushed a political solution through military means it is a military led solution that they've achieved there no so of course, but it was under an occupation right they their supposed home country was under an occupation so what are, what are they supposed to do they can't talk politics and i mean so there are two partners there there are two actors one is the united states one is taliban both of them believe in one thing fight and talk fight and talk that's what they've been doing for the last 8 years for pakistan it was always talk and talk because the more fight and talk was there the more problem was for pakistan because of this constant do more and then people coming forward and back and forth from from a very porous border so both americans and the taliban operated in the same way that they wanted to fight a little bit they also wanted to talk a little bit and for the last two years or so at least the americans kind of realized that okay uh, we need to give space to them and that's exactly how i think they've given space and for pakistan i think the real problem starts where you we the the concern is that that pakistan does not want to be left alone by the international community taking all the burden of blame and responsibility to now ensure that afghanistan is safe we have a particular leverage in afghanistan the united states have a very huge leverage over taliban at the moment as we speak the taliban wants to talk to uh, the us not just talk they want to go to davos they also want to attend unga and all of that so the americans have a lot of leverage over them for our side the leverage isn't as much as people think it is or it was used to be in my opinion which is why i we i think the problem from our side is that that the more instability that arises over there because of the lack of you know 
international engagement with Afghanistan, the more it's not just a refugee problem that there are going to be a million more refugees. We're already hosting three million. I'm sure a one million will not really add to a problem. But but who are the people that come in? Whether they are TTPs, whether there are those that want to stay destabilize the region, whether they're going to be more attacks. What if there is an attack on the US embassy in Islamabad? What if there is an attack on anywhere else on a cricket team? What do we do then? So I think those are concerns are which which are very real for us, and we don't want the international uh, society to abandon Afghanistan the way it did last time, which created a whole problem. So for us, this, the talking points are exactly the same. You need to secure the world. Talk to the Afghan people, the women, the the, the minorities. Talk to everyone. Talk to Taliban. Talk to Stanagazais. Talk to uh, Masoods. But talk to everyone and be the four person in that the last time what happened was that i mean i remember uh in the 1990s when the the cold war ended and everything ended it was i think the uh george bush the senior bush to whom the the the, the budget for Afghanistan went and i think it was 50 million dollars or 5 million dollars that were asked for an aid and he refused he said that i'm not interested so spending like a billion or two billion dollars in Afghanistan. And they were not ready to give even five or fifty million dollars to Afghanistan. That's the mistake that should not be repeated. I'm very, very happy that the last two tweets by uh, U.S. Secretary of State are very positive on that side that they want to keep an engagement with Afghanistan. And if that's there, I do think there is a very positive uh, impact that Afghanistan will create. And in the long run, I think uh, I personally, and this is not any state optional view, that uh, the Taliban wants to work with the international community and whatever the government. So. Yeah, and I think I, I agree with you that there's a lot of leverage here. And I think even from a very Machiavellian point of view of where the US internally is or where Western Europe internally is, right? Uh, a couple of billion a year um, in terms of uh, projects on the ground is a far better outcome than a collapsing Afghanistan where tens of thousands of more Afghan refugees want to get to Greece or have to fly via Doha to America um, in an election year that's coming up 2022 here in Washington, D.C. Um, that's the last thing that the Biden administration would want is a border crisis in Texas or towards the state of Texas from coming from Latin America and uh, a need to increase the number of refugee applications that need to be accepted because Afghanistan is a place where many more thousands of people want to leave and they have a due uh, right to leave because they have worked with the United States in the past. And so um, rather than deal with that political problem domestically, it is far better uh, for the Germans and the French and the Americans and everybody else to sort of say, you know what, like you have one and there's leverage here in the sense that this money is needed to stabilize. And if the Taliban don't get access to that money, then they have a protracted another 10 years, five years, who knows how many long uh, years of war, uh, which would be terrible for everybody, especially the countries around, especially for Afghans and the countries around um, Afghanistan. So I, let's see, I, let's see where I, that I, goes. I fear in that part. And here is where it comes to the implementation side of things. I mean, uh, intentionally, I'm, I, I can assure you one thing, and I'm pretty sure talking to my friends in the US, uh, they have their heart and mind in the right place. They know exactly what needs to be done. Can they do it? That's a real problem. Because even if the United States try right now to delist Taliban from the uh, from the terror list, uh, the Haqqani network or whatever, whoever they are, and try to unfreeze that money and try to dole it out, it will take at least eight to nine months because of the bureaucratic 
work and all of that. Sometimes I feel the situations get worse on ground, not because there's an intention to it, but because the bureaucratic channels and the way to process that, my fear is really that, that the time may run up. We yeah. don't have years over here. We can't wait for processes to work for nine months and all. The US democracy needs to act really quick in terms of providing the funds that are needed to the Afghan people on ground for the, their lives to stabilize. If they don't want refugees, and I'm very, I mean, I'm actually disappointed in the fact that it all comes down to 20 years of war and all the Western societies are talking really about is that you keep the refugees over there. That's all. So, I mean, that's a talk for a different time though, but in Pakistan, you'll be surprised that anyone you talk to in the policy sector and all, apart from the statements on the top, no one is really reluctant to the idea of the refugees. The only concern is that, okay, fine, we don't want any guys coming and blowing themselves up, but there are 3 million refugees, we can host a million more as well. So there is no domestic politics going on between PMLN, PPP, and PTI over it. Instead, there is a lot of politics going on over there, and that's their only demand, which is sad. Yet we say that, fine, if that is there, throw in a $5 billion, and let's try to find a way to make sure that people in Afghanistan don't have really have to leave. And I'm pretty sure that refugees, whoever is trying to run, uh, are really not interested to run from a place. It's this crisis that make them, and then certainty, which makes them run. The whole entire scenario on the Kabul airport, you know what exactly happened? So my friends in Afghanistan, uh, specifically in Kabul, told me that the first time there was those crises at the Kabul airport, it was triggered by a TikTok video. That somebody went viral in Kabul, and he created a TikTok that the US is essentially brought the jets and everybody is now allowed to go. Whoever wants to get out can get out. And there were video going around viral. And I know a lot of my friends that said that everybody just went about and started running to the airport with their bags and everything that this is probably a way to get out of the country, whether they have a problem or not. The Taliban was confused as to what exactly happened because it's not even the United States. I mean, it created a panic. But the real panic created by someone talking about a video on a TikTok, and it, it just created a sort of panic where everybody was running to the airport. Now, how do you make sure that the people in Afghanistan feel secure, secure and stable, that disdain wasn't in the only way to do that, is to develop some faith and trust that whatever the new setup that may emerge, and I'm not saying that just to say that give a stamp of credibility to Taliban and say that, go ahead with your version of whatever you want to do. No, no, no. You scale it back. You put out your demands that for you to get this, this, and this, 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 this needs to be done and negotiate from that point of view. And America still has a huge leverage to be able to undertake that. And I think the Taliban will still dance to the tunes uh, because yeah. it really needs, it really needs and that. It cannot survive for more than two months. And I can put it down on paper. Two months is the max that they can survive uh, without the entire credibility. They don't have the money to run the government. Yeah. I think the first thing that, I mean, I agree, like the, the file moving will take a bit of long time for additional funds. But if there is a political sort of, you know, settlement in Kabul that is seem to be inclusive, um, then at least the 9 billion or so that have been frozen in reserves will get unlocked. That is a big uh, thing that can happen immediately. So that's good. And to your point on refugees, the, the sad irony of this whole situation is that, you know, Western countries who are far richer and have far more resources are the ones complaining, whereas countries like Pakistan, Bangladesh, Lebanon, Jordan, um, and others 
um, who are far poorer or have far more capacity constraints have hosted millions of refugees across borders for decades, if not more. Um, that you know, people that have come primarily due to conflict stoked by uh, Western countries over the years. So that is the tragic uh, irony of history. Um, but before I let you go, this has been a fascinating conversation. Um, but, and I always ask my guests two or three book recommendations for listeners. So what are two or three books that you would recommend people pick up and read? Oh, so one, I think more than the books, I, I, I'll just comment on one part. It's not how many, one thing I want to make sure on that. It's not how many books are you reading in a year? Because I do know there are a lot of videos I see on social media that read 50 books a day. Like there's a new app to read books, read one book but read it in such a detail that you actually learn something out of it. So, and choose very wisely what you read, because I do think that there is a lot of published material, which is so problematic that it, it it's not suitable for reading purposes. Uh, there is, there is a lot of stuff that I read uh, on many different areas. Uh, I don't know where to actually start. I mean, should, on politics or on... any topic, just pick something that you think has deeply influenced you over time. I, I, so in different phases of life, you are experienced by, uh, you, you get inspired by different, uh, source of book. I think conference of the birds for Natar's, uh, original handbook on Sufism, the most inspiring because it allows you to understand how to think, uh, that's one very, very important book. I, I do think that's one should read that, uh, in the latest, I think on the more recent side of things, uh, the, uh, the power of tragedy uh they, that's i think very very important book and the art of super deductions uh i'm recommending most of those books because i feel that those are those books that actually help you to develop a capacity to read books in the right way uh in terms of the subject matter uh i think on afghanistan uh i would definitely recommend afghanistan uh, on pakistan is the uh the book by Bruce Riddell, uh, the Armageddon, uh, forgetting the whole title of it. Uh, so that was really good. The Rectorate Ice and Ghost was both by Steve Cole. I would definitely recommend on Afghanistan. Uh, on Pakistan, uh, I don't recommend reading any book at all, uh, partly because I think most of the stuff that is written uh, is not one of the best that I've read. I do think that. Uh, 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 Dan Markey uh, at Johns Hopkins, very good. Uh, even some work by Christian Fair. Uh, she's her, her work, academic work is actually uh, pretty good. It's excellent. Uh, I think her her book, Fighting to the End, um, was, was so excellent. Her book, I do think that one should read that. Despite of her views and all of that, I don't know what's up with her on Twitter, but I do think her academic work is is, is definitely worth a read. Uh, and I so on Pakistan, I think that's that that work is important. Uh, apart from that, I think, uh, yeah, more or less. I think that's a lot. That's a, that's a great set of recommendations. So, um, I think we covered a lot of ground on these and, and, yeah, I, 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 and avoid reading, uh, and developing analysis through people's tweets. That, that, is, that is super true. <laughs> I think you can much better in real life than they are on Twitter. 
or their academic work right like christine fair's academic work is of excellent quality and it's a must read for anyone who's trying to study pakistan but if you develop an opinion or analysis out of a tweet then you really, will go down the wrong way in the last minute because i think we just i have to move on as well the this is a really sad part and i think this is conversation for another time on how social media has essentially reduced the conversation to 140 characters and to a point where uh we we start judging the people through their twitter but then again i don't know whose responsibility it is if you're an academic then perhaps tweet like an academic but then there is no pressure to do that but a lot of writers i know personally who are very critical on uh, on pakistan uh, even aisha sadiqa her book military incorporation and all of that were very fascinating work uh good insights and all but somehow or the other but uh, when you become a twitter activist and you have to comment on every single thing and here is what i believe as an academic i think you you should not supposed to have comment have a comment on everything or an opinion on everything uh when a scholar starts having an opinion on every single thing then i'm not sure if uh, the real opinions matter either because you become tainted with a particular uh sex so uh, i think a, a wise guy like the old times uh they need to speak seldom and very wisely So let the trolls do their job, and you only say the stuff that I think is more uh, appropriate to your work, and which also keeps you elevated. Which is one of the reasons I think a lot of time academics keep complaining and scholars that why are we constantly getting trolled? It's probably because maybe we are saying too much, and we need to say only on so much which is which is which which, which reflects some level of depth and analysis. Otherwise, people don't take us seriously. Yeah, I think as my grandfather, my God rest his soul, used to say that in a room the quietest person is often the smartest one uh because they're absorbing more and talking less um so i think that same rule applies for should apply for twitter as well um but dr usain thank you so much for taking out the time this was a wonderful conversation i think we'll have you again on uh the podcast to talk about social media and its impact as well because there's a lot to discuss there but uh again thank you so much for taking out the time absolute pleasure usain and thank you so much for inviting me over take care